So let us hear then God's word from Titus 1, or excuse me, 2, beginning in verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. All right. Well, Paul, as we have seen here in these Uh, verses in chapter 2, has directed Titus to instruct the homes here of these Cretan churches to live Christianly and simply to be different from the Cretan culture. Uh, He begins, of course, with the older men. It makes sense as heads of houses and extended houses uh, to start with this. And then he moves to the older women uh, who then are to uh, help their husbands, yes, But also, as he emphasizes here, to teach the younger women to be good wives and mothers. And uh, they are not uh, to think like the unbelieving culture around them. And they are to teach the younger women not to think uh, like that as well. Now, when we say, or as Paul says here, that wives must submit to their husbands, that they must be homemakers, that they must dress modestly, that they must be quiet with a gentle spirit, and so forth, Um, then um, it's quite common in our culture, and surely there would have been some similar things in the first century with the new Roman woman ideals. Um, We're going to be called hateful to women when we say these things, when Paul says these things. We're going to be called misogynists or oppressive, Or, you're just part of the male hegemony, that's why you're saying this. Well, as we think here a bit about the response of how we behave, and in this case, especially, um, when it regards the younger women, Paul makes a comment about this here at the end of the verse. Or to put it a different way, if the younger women are influenced by social media or music, or the feminist doctrines of our culture, then this gives basically a bad name. And so as we look here at the end of verse 5 here tonight, to start with, it says that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Point's pretty straightforward here, isn't it? We must act in a godly way, and here the emphasis, young women... Or the word of God is going to be blasphemed. It's going to be mocked. It's going to be spoken against. 
Now, <clears throat> let me expand on this here a little bit. When Paul says that the word of God is going to be mocked, certainly that is true. Okay, they're going to they're discount God's word, say, well, this is not from God or something like that. But ultimately, when somebody mocks the word of God, they're mocking God. When somebody mocks us or Paul or Peter or someone else, ultimately they are mocking God. Now, some people will try to get around this obvious implication by changing God into someone more compatible, a loving God, a a big man upstairs, someone who just wants me to be happy. And they ignore the fact that this is God's word to us. This isn't just Paul's opinion. It isn't just our opinion. Paul is not the chauvinist. Peter is not the hater. Moses is not the purveyor of male power and the subjugation of women. In the end, God is. But they won't admit that. From their perspective, they're willing to say that Paul is the hater, or you and I are, or that we are misogynists, we're against women. Uh, But in the end, it's God who said, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. In the end, it's God who says, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands are head of the wife. In the end, it was God, the Holy Spirit, who led Peter to say, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him master. And I could give other examples. And so the feminists have a problem ultimately with God and therefore God's word, and therefore some of the authors here in the Bible, and by extension us as well. Now, as I've mentioned, I believe I even said it last week, that uh, there are some aspects of feminism that have been good and helpful. There are some aspects of uh, lifting up women, as it were, to, to fight against some of the abuse that has taken place by husbands some of the oppressive actions against women just in general. Okay, fair enough. But much, unfortunately, of feminism has gone way too far. And so when younger women, or even older women, and older men even, are acting like unbelievers, then the unbeliever is going to mock God and his word. They're going to look at us and see an ungodly person and say, well, this Christianity stuff can't be true. Why should I read the Bible? Why should I listen to what is there? So, for example, in the last uh, couple years or something like that, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. and his wife have made big news. And not because they have been exceptionally godly. Uh, Jerry has been exposed as a womanizer, And his wife apparently has been part of the whole thing with this young boy at the swimming pool or whatever. Uh, They've been caught for wasting money, being liars, and so forth. And not surprisingly, unbelievers have used this as a reason to mock the word of God and to mock God ultimately. We don't want anything to do with this Christianity stuff. I mean, look what the Christians are doing. And so when we act sinfully, here now more generally, even ourselves. If we are gossips, or if we stick our nose into other people's business, if we act as a holier-than-thou kind of person, 
if we're a saint on Sunday and a heathen during the week, unbelievers are going to say that this Christianity stuff is worthless. That's what Paul is addressing here. Now, on the other hand, if older men are godly and dignified, if they have a strong faith and are loving toward God and others, if older women control their tongues and use their free time to teach righteousness and instruct the younger women to be loving wives and mothers, and then if the younger women are different from the culture and do dress modestly and are family-oriented and quiet and yet confident in the right ways, then unbelievers may be drawn to the truths of God's word, to the gospel, and ultimately to God himself. When our families stand out as different from the culture, of course, none of our families are perfect. But if our families are significantly different, if we are welcoming to others, if we are loving, if we are non-judgmental, if we persevere in righteousness, for many people, this is actually more impactful than anything we may say to them about Jesus. Godly homes are beautiful to a watching world. Even those who mock it realize that there's something good about it. And some, yes, will hate us for it, but it's only in spite of themselves. But some are going to see this and be drawn to Christ. And so we cannot have right doctrine only. We must live rightly. Talked about that in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 1 here in chapter 2. And that's what Paul is coming back to here now at the end of verse 5. We cannot merely proclaim the truth. We must live it. And so if we here hold firmly to conservative reform doctrine, and yet we go to work and we curse with the rest of them, if we constantly ride the fence regarding alcohol, if we join in with the gossip and slander at family events, if we laugh at coarse jokes at school, if we criticize our parents in front of our friends, or we demean our spouse in front of our buddies, or we flirt with someone when our spouse is not around, fill in the blank with anything else here, right? And why would anyone want to follow Jesus if his followers are acting like unbelievers? Now, <clears throat> I was thinking of one time in my own life here, and um, I recall talking to an extended family member. This was several years ago now, um, and uh, he has rejected Christ. He's heard the truth. He knows the truth. He might even be able to beat us in Bible trivia in some ways. Um, but when I talked to him about Christ and basically asked him why is he not believe as a Christian, uh, his response was, Look at all the things that the church has done over the years that have been so bad. Obviously, the Crusades were uh, first on his lips. Think of pedophilia and the priesthood and many other things. But the thing that he kept saying was, Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. Now, <clears throat> I endeavored to say, you know, look, I can understand some of your concern, <laughs> Uh, you're right. 
Christians have done some pretty bad things over the years. But in the end, the problem is not with Christians, it's with Christ. The reason why he has rejected Christ is because he's not accepting Christ. However, Christians sometimes make it really hard for people to believe in Jesus. In many ways, it's understandable why anyone would reject Christ when they look around at those who claim to be Christians. And so Paul's point here is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Let us act in ways that invite people to God. Let's not act in ways that will turn them away. Now, God does use our sin. He uses our imperfections to advance his kingdom. But that's no excuse for us to conduct ourselves with mediocre holiness. And so, ultimately, unbelievers are condemned because they refuse to repent and believe in Christ. But let us not give them any more reasons to reject the truth. So here is... The conclusion of verse 5 and why I didn't just rush through it last week. It's important for us to think carefully about this. It's not a complex idea, but it's something we need to be very, very cognizant about, especially as families. All right, well, as always, we could say more. Let's look now at verse 6. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Paul, of course, goes from older men, older women, younger women, now younger men. And what stands out here is there's just one attribute. There's only one thing that he says about younger men, that they are to be sober-minded. Now, why does he do this? Is it because young men have it all together? Of course not. (laughs) Okay. Uh, They need as much instruction as the younger women and the other two categories that we've seen. Um, But there's probably a couple reasons why Paul only mentions one thing. And and, uh, one of those may be this. There probably was not as many young men in the church at that time. Similar to today. In our culture today, on average... There are fewer men than women in a church, and on average, most churches have fewer young men compared to young women. That was true in the first century. It's the same today, maybe for different reasons in some ways, but some similar reasons. Now, young men here, uh, basically we're talking about somebody in their 20s. From 20 to 30 years old was usually this category of young men. Because remember, uh, younger than 20, they couldn't fight in the army in Israel. And so um, a, a child, you might say, was up to 20. Now, the young man at 20 to 30, remember, older men are 50 and up. So men, without another attribute here, basically someone in their 30s and 40s. And so we're talking primarily about those who are in their 30s. And even today, when we talk about young men, we we typically are talking about those who are somewhere between 18 and 30. So it's it's a very similar category in that sense. And so it is quite possible that Paul does not say much about the young men here because there weren't that many there. But I think there's also another reason. And... 
And it's not because they didn't need to hear anything. It's just that Paul is saying it in other ways. So in verses 7 and 8, you'll see how he transitions. He's speaking to Titus. And even here in verse 6, the command, exhort, that's you, and it's singular. So Titus, you exhort young men to be sober-minded. And then, in all things, showing yourself, that's singular. So he's still talking to Titus. And showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech, that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Um, Clearly, he's speaking to Titus. And I think it's obvious that Paul is assuming that Titus is younger in some way. Maybe not as young as Timothy, but younger anyway, not an older man. Um, and so I think at least some <coughs> excuse me, of what Paul is going to say to Titus in these next two verses can have some application for younger men. But uh, I think there's another um, connection that we can make. And that is <coughs> to look backward. <coughs> to look backward to what he said to the elders. Now there's a difference. Right? Elders are not young men. Right? They're older men, hence the term elder. Um, they're not necessarily older in the sense of, of retirement age, but they're older than young men. So we're talking primarily those in their 30s and 40s and, and maybe even beyond that, in, again, in the first century context. Um, and so I, I think Paul here is assuming, possibly you could say, that we're going to jump back to chapter 1 and say, okay, now these attributes for elders are going to apply to younger men at least in some ways. Maybe not in every way, but at least in some ways. So, uh, I want us to do that. Again, I I don't think I'm reading into the text or reaching here. I I think that's Paul's purpose. I think he's saying, okay, remember what we said. Let's apply that to younger men here, too. Now, before we do that, in our particular church, we are, you might say, a bit unusual. The the number, percentage-wise, of young men in our church is higher than what's on average we see in most churches. Currently, we have four young men who are members, and then we can have Daniel, too, who is still a member at this point, and we have three more young men who are in the process of pursuing membership. That's very unusual for a small church. I think it's part of God's blessing. I think it's a great thing. Um, And and so, as in God's providence, last week we had several young women here in the the, uh, context of of these words. Um, We have some of them not here tonight, the younger men, (laughs) but uh, maybe they can listen to this later. But uh, um, it's... um, I, I think a, a great blessing for us here in this way. So, <clears throat> with all this in mind, I'd like to, uh, to go back to chapter 1 and refresh our memory on this. And of course, we didn't look at it very long ago and just go through these attributes here briefly. 
And so starting in verse 6, it says, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. And so first of all, certainly this is true of elders, but it's also true of young men. Now, uh, let let me add in this point. Young men um, in the first century typically got married right around 25 years of age. Now, with arranged marriages and some of those kind of things, it was much more uniform. Um, Maybe they'd be a little younger, maybe a little bit older. And as I mentioned, younger women typically got married somewhere 15, 16, 17 years of age. So they would be somewhere 7 to 10 years between the husband and wife. That was common then. Now, even today, uh, many young men do get married about 25 years of age, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older, um, because of what we have with college and so forth. That's not uncommon. Uh, But, of course, we have many single men, which was not as common in the first century. Um, So, with that said, verse 6 says, the elders, and by extension, right, everyone, and here now in particular, young men, are to be blameless. Now, you recall that that term does not mean innocent in the sense of perfection, but innocent in the sense of accusation. And so if someone accuses us of wrongdoing, that charge cannot stick. Okay, they are to be blameless. We are to be blameless. And then secondly, he is to be a good family man. Now, some young men aren't married, or at least not yet. But certainly those that are, are to be faithful husbands and good fathers. Okay, to put it negatively, the young man should not be living with his girlfriend or something to that effect. He's to be a family man. He is to be godly here in this way. <clears throat> All right, now, uh, let's look at verse 7. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. All right, now, first of all, notice that the idea of stewardship applies to the bishop. It applies to the elder. It doesn't apply to the younger man. The young man is not a steward of God's house, is not taking care of God's house. He may be in training to do that to some degree and may help out in God's house, but he's not a steward in the same way. That's what the elder does. And so that point does not apply here. Okay? But the five vices certainly do. And not just to elders, not just to young men, but to all of us. Um, and so first here, the, the, the five vices, it says not self-willed. And so uh, elders, and here now again our focus, younger men are not to be headstrong. They're not to be stubborn. Secondly, uh, not quick-tempered. And so the young man needs to hold his temper. He's not to be prone to anger, not to be a hothead. Uh, thirdly, not given to wine. So the young man shouldn't be enthralled with the bar scene. Next, not violent. Now You recall that uh, alcohol and uh, these terms surrounding it of violence and and anger and such, it makes sense. They often go together. And so here, Paul is saying, do not be quarrelsome. Do not be an, an intimidator kind of idea. And then lastly, the last vice he mentions here is not greedy for money. Money is fine, but not greedy for it. 
not loving it. Now again, this is applying to elders, but think about it in the context of young men. Hey, even in our culture, right? you graduate college or you graduate even high school and, and there's this great desire to make lots of money. And for some young men, they get out of college and all of a sudden they go from nothing to making you know, lots and lots of money. And um, it's a very fitting vice that Paul says to avoid. And so young men, okay, as well as elders and the rest of us, let's not be greedy or a lover of money. All right, now, um, conversely, we move from vices to virtues. And in verse 8, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. All right, now, the first of these, of course, is hospitable. And you recall when I went through this, I indicated to you that the word literally means a lover of strangers, And so this does not mean we show hospitality to family and friends. Now, we should be hospitable to family and friends, but hospitality is more than that. It is showing hospitality to those outside of our family, outside of our immediate friends. Now, certainly if a young man is married, this makes a lot of sense. But even if a young man is single, he still can show hospitality. Now, maybe he's not going to make a five-course dinner for somebody, but he can be hospitable in other ways. And so hospitality is for us all, not just for the elders. Uh, Next, then, it says, a lover of what is good. Now, you might remember when we went through this here, um, I talked about uh, what our culture says is good. And that we need to think differently. We need to think of what God says is good and love those things. And so when it comes to young men, our culture says it's a good thing to sow your wild oats. Our culture says that it's a good thing to go to frat parties and see how much beer you can drink in an hour. Or whatever. Our culture says it's good for young men to live it up, make scads of money, and just, you know, buy a nice fancy car or whatever it is, right? But are these good things in God's sight? And so again, when it says loving what is good, what do we mean by good? And we have to use the scriptures here as our guide in that way. And so again, elders, but also younger men should love good things. And then we come to the next word here, sober-minded. And this is the one that we've seen over and over again, and this is the one that's mentioned in chapter 2, verse 6. Okay, this is the one that Paul repeats in chapter 1, verse 8. And then, remember, in chapter 2, verse 2, the New King James translates it as temperate there in verse 2, but it's the same word. And then in verse 4, it's the verb form, which the New King James translates it as admonish, and then... We saw it last time in verse 5. New King James translates it as discreet. But again, it's the same word every time, to be sober-minded. And now we see it here in verse 6. Obviously, this is very important for Paul. He wants us to think soberly, to have a sound mind, to think carefully. It's not 
emphasizing controlling our behavior, it's emphasizing controlling our minds. Now, when we do that, that will impact our behavior. And so whether we're thinking about today's culture or the Cretan culture of the first century, um, many young men are just indulgent, not just sexually, but in many other ways. They tend to be very active and even very careless. And so Paul, uh, if he came to our culture, would probably say, well, that looks like Crete. (laughs) And so, as young men, you need to think soberly. You need to be very different from the culture around us. Be sensible in your thinking. Make good judgment. You know, over and over and over again, we hear in our culture, young men, you know, don't ask them to do anything with, you know, great importance because, you know, they, they can't think straight or something like that. Um, but Paul's saying, no, be different. Self-mastery begins in the mind. So if we talk about three categories here just for a moment. Hey, when we talk about money, young men, right, think soberly about money. Don't just spend it carelessly. Use it wisely. Invest it. Tithe on your money, as Stan's been talking about in Sunday school, and being good stewards and so forth, right? Think soberly about these things. In regard to work, it's not just to make lots of money. It's not just to advance up the ladder at the corporate, uh, whatever it is, right? We we are to think soberly about work. Uh, And then, of course, in regard to relationships, we should think soberly about relationships. And so whether that's just, you know, casual friends hanging out and the things that you do when you do that with your buddies, or when we're thinking about young women, you need to think soberly about these things. And so all that is done must be governed by sober-mindedness. Now, um, you notice how Paul gives us a verb in this verse. Now, he's had some verbs prior to this, yes. But do you see how verse 1 is the the principal one for this whole section? Speak the things, Titus. And that governs everything here. But notice here now in verse 6, we have exhort. The one in verse 4 is for the older women. Here is the next command to Titus. We have it in verse 1, and now we have the second one to Titus. Exhort, you, Titus, exhort younger men. Now, why does Paul give another command here? Why doesn't he do it in another verse or just not have one here at all? Well, um, maybe it's just simply because younger men tend to be excitable, sometimes overexcited and overzealous. They don't have their years of wisdom yet. And so Paul here gives this command, exhort younger men. Because sometimes they get carried away, even in good ways. They're trying to do good things, maybe. But sometimes they just overdo it, a little too much zeal or something like that. And so it seems like Paul is giving this command to Titus to exhort younger men because, you know, it's like a young horse, right? You just got to rein them in. It's great to have all that energy, but you need to rein them in. And so this is likely why Paul says, exhort them here. And 
Uh, it's likely why Paul puts verses 7 and 8 immediately following verse 6. Titus be a good example to these younger men. So, <clears throat> a few thoughts here about sober-mindedness and how it fits here in chapter 2, verse 6. So let's go back to chapter 1. And now the, the last three attributes. Uh, the next one is just. Your translation may say upright or something like that. Uh, you might remember uh, I said this is the word for righteous, uh, just, upright. We could even consider it in the context of law abiding. And so we need to be righteous, right? Remember that word has an association with the law. <clears throat> and so elders, yes, but here younger men are to be righteous in regard to the law. Law abiding in a biblical sense in the church and the family, but even in society. Again, with young men, again, think of our culture with young men. There's a lot of uh, lack of law abidingness. <laughs> okay. But we as Christians need to be different. All right, then the next word is holy. And you may remember that this is actually the word for piety, to be devout. And so, um, again, this applies to us all here with younger men. Right? Be devout in your relationship with God is the emphasis here. Okay? Do devotion, spend time with him in prayer and Bible study and so forth. And then the last word here, self-controlled. All right, now this is the corresponding word with sober-minded. You begin with the mind, think soberly. Now we put it into practice, it's being self-controlled. Okay? And so be self-disciplined, have an inner strength that results in godly living. All right, now verse 9, then notice how this does not apply to the younger men. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. It does not apply as an, as an elder, right? He's not an elder. He is a young man. Um, and so in that sense, as a steward in God's house, right, he's not doing that. It doesn't apply to him. That said, right, young men still need to be studying the scriptures, still need to understand it, still need to teach it and exhort and contradict uh, those who would say differently. Just not in a more formal uh, capacity, but still needs to do it in his home and uh, even in other ways here in the church. And so as, as he does these things, Right? Do you see how this is going to prepare him to be an elder someday? So again, I, I don't think that I'm stretching here to connect chapter 2, verse 6 with chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. I think Paul is, is deliberate in this way, but only giving us one word. And that word takes us back to chapter 1, verse 8, because he wants us to see this connection. And so he wants the younger men you might say, to prepare to become elders someday. And so as we look at this list here just briefly again tonight, Paul is saying, <clears throat> hey, let's be different from the culture. Let's act as young men in such a way that the culture will not blaspheme the word of God and will not blaspheme God ultimately. Let us be different. Let us be godly. And so... Um, a few words here tonight in this way. Again, with each one of these peoples, it can apply to all of us. But here with this particular emphasis. 
All right, so we'll pick up then with the words to Titus specifically uh, next time. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, what you teach us here. And uh, we do ask uh, yet again that you would be merciful to us, that you would help us to live in ways that are consistent with your word. We pray especially for the young men in our congregation, and even young men we may know in in other capacities. We pray, Lord, that you would help them to to be godly and uh, to be sober-minded, and in all these different ways, the the vices and virtues and and avoiding sin and and putting on righteousness. We pray, Lord, that you would help each one then to, to live in such a way that that you and your word would not be blasphemed, but rather um, honored and, and lifted up, and that, that um, the young man would be a great witness and a great, um, uh, if I could connect then with, with Romans 1, uh, would, would do their job well of, of spreading the gospel um, in, in the things that they do and say. And so, Lord, we pray for your your mercies in this way. We're thankful that we are seeing some of this in our young men, and we just pray that it would continue and it would grow, and that it, um, for all of us, that you would grow us in grace, uh, that we would be more and more like you. And so we pray um, for the strength of your spirit here in these ways, and we thank you uh, for the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And so we pray this then in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>